You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. And today I have San Francisco-based cardiologist, Dr. Nicole Harkin. She is a board-certified cardiologist. She's actually a lipidologist, and we're going to talk about what that means. And I know that most of my listeners are women. So um, we're going to talk about the heart as in general, but we're going to talk a lot about women's health in relation to your heart health today. And we maybe we'll throw a, a man tip or two in there, but um, mostly women, just women's health in general. So thank you, Dr. Harkin, for being here and taking the time. I'm so, so excited to have this conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. I think it's going to be so much fun. Okay. First things first, what is a lipidologist? Yeah. So a lipidologist is just a fancy word for a cholesterol doctor. So we are like the super dorks in the doctor mm-hmm. community and we, <laughs> and we learn all there is to know about cholesterol metabolism and all that cool stuff. Okay. So with cholesterol being your focus, a big part of what you do, you're a, you're a preventative cardiologist and, and kind of by definition, if you're talking about lipids all the time, but so, so what does, what does that even mean? What is a preventative cardiologist? Yeah. So preventive cardiologist is actually a uh, sort of subspecialty within cardiology. So I'm a general cardiologist, meaning I, I know how to do the normal cardiology stuff and look at echoes and stress tests and all that kind of thing. But um, what has emerged over the last couple of years is this is this, this specific focus on preventing heart health. And so we are cardiologists who really look at all of the risk factors for heart disease and try to optimize them and prevent cardiovascular events. And this can either be in what's called primary prevention, which are people who don't have a history of heart attacks or known heart disease. And so you're trying to to optimize their risk factors and prevent heart disease from developing in the first place. And then there's this concept of secondary prevention, which are people who've had a heart attack or a stroke or known heart disease, and you're trying to prevent further events. And obviously it's important to prevent uh, heart, heart disease in both of these people. Okay. I also want to go back to the fact that you called yourself a nerd in the beginning. Like, okay, you said it, you have like five board certifications. Can we just like, I just need to pause for a second because most people get one. Sometimes you do a fellowship and get two. Maybe you'll do a second fellowship and get three, but you have five. That's a lot. Yeah, it, it's a lot. And I kind of still, I'm like so tempted to add more. Like I want to go get boarded in obesity medicine and there's so much, I, I, I like so learning, stressful. I guess. Oh, bless <laughs> it. Bless your heart. Yeah. So, I mean, but with that, I mean, just to say like, I, I don't know that, I mean, there's not a more qualified person to be talking to us today about our hearts. Um, I, I would love for you to just give us a few facts on women's heart health, honestly, because, you know, I think we were talking about before we started kind of most of my listeners are in that age 25 to, to 55, which is really before we start thinking about our hearts. I I think, I mean, I 
I certainly don't think about mine very much. And that being said, is heart heart disease is still the number one killer of women, correct? And I mean, and everybody. It's just yeah, exactly. Everybody. Exactly. So heart disease is the top killer in both men and women globally. So all comers, that is our biggest chance of leaving this lovely earth. And so I think it's really important. And in particular for women, it's super important to recognize mm-hmm. that it is our top cause of death. Cause so much of, I was actually at this fantastic cardiometabolic women's heart health conference in LA last weekend. And, um, one of the speakers brought up again about sort of this notion that for so long in medicine, there's been this kind of the key approach to women's health, which is like, we care about the breasts and our gynecologic mm-hmm. issues. And that's sort of women's health, right? Forgetting yeah. all the other important organs in between and and the fact that heart disease is our, our top cause of death. And so, so I think that finally we are starting to really discuss this a lot more, um, but it, it, we have so much work still to do. I mean, we still, in some of these major cardiovascular trials where we have you know tons and tons of participants, women still only make up often like 20% of the population that's being right. studied. Right. Um, we're less likely to get good treatment. So if we come into a heart attack, come into a hospital with a heart attack, we're less likely to um, get life-saving therapy. We're less likely to put on goal-directed medical therapy. We're more likely to right. die from our first heart attack. I mean, there's all these like pretty grim statistics about women oh. and heart disease. Um, okay. So you mentioned women are, le- are less likely to get adequate care. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting that the data that comes out. Um, but essentially when we look at say women coming in with a heart attack or women who have known coronary artery disease, we're not always on the appropriate sort of goal-directed medical therapy like we should be. And so, um, and it's actually also very interesting where we find that women who are treated by women physicians actually tend to have better outcomes. And so a lot of this probably has to do with the fact that, um, you know, both the medical community and then the community at large really under-recognize heart disease as right. an issue for women. And so we're less likely to kind of get picked up that maybe we have heart disease. And then some of our, our risk factors are just not as well managed because there's still this kind of lingering perce- perception that we're not going to die of heart disease. So what are the signs different for women or does it, I'm assuming it would present differently in women? Great question. So we actually now know that the most common sort of chief complaint if a woman's coming in with a a heart Mm -hmm. attack is actually chest pain. Now we're more likely to have, um, than men to have atypical chest pain. So it can kind of be less like this. So the classic chest pain that, you know, doctors will definitely recognize as, uh Oh, maybe this person's having a heart attack is like an elephant sitting on their chest or, or whatever else. But women can sort of have more of a, uh, kind of a more of a GI presentation sometimes, kind of like this weird, just uncomfortable fullness sensation or, um, or the, the pressure or pain or sensation can be more in the neck or in a shoulder. Sometimes we'll just overall just feel really unwell or have more shortness of breath. Um, and so sometimes these, these things can get missed. Other times we come in with like the classic chest pain. Um, but because of the treating provider server sort of overall bias that maybe women don't have heart diseases as commonly as men do. It's just not 
sort of the first, second or third thing that we think of. Yeah. Well, and, and what do you even, I mean, I, I would love for people to even know when I feel like heart disease sounds so vague and like, we, we don't even really know, I think in general, just like, what, what does that mean? Is that, or are you saying like I have high cholesterol or does that mean I've got some artery blockage or what, how do you even define heart disease? Yeah. So heart disease can be all of those things that have to do with the heart, right? And so when we talk about heart disease, we can be talking about uh, where the heart, the heart's a muscle and that the pump itself, it's not working very well. We can be talking about rhythm issues, valve issues, all kinds of things. But you're right, sort of colloquially, when you and I are talking about heart disease and when most people are referring to it, we're referring to it as, as the blockages that happen in the arteries. And so what happens and how that develops, we, we can go into, but a Essentially, it's a plaque buildup of cholesterol uh-huh. into the arteries. And one of two things can happen with that plaque. Either it can sort of enlarge and get bigger and, and decrease the blood flow to the heart. And then people can start to get shortness of breath or chest pain with their walk, when they're walking. That's angina. Um, or it can, um, in even these smaller blockages, can uh, occasionally get irritated, essentially, and rupture. And that's when you get sort of this acute blockage of arteries and that's the the myocardial infarction or the heart attack. Heart attack. Yeah. So we're thinking, I think most people just assume heart disease, you mean heart attack, but there's so much more that happens before that, before you have a heart attack or, uh, you know, that's completely might have nothing to do with a heart attack, but that's still considered, you know, heart disease. Um, and so I want to ask you, okay, for women, you know, if you've got younger women, I mean, do you, do you have people come in that really just have no, like they've never had any heart symptoms. They've got nothing going on, but they're like, you know what? I'm not trying to have a heart attack. Let me go see my preventative cardiologist. Is that what people do? Yeah. So as a preventive cardiologist, I probably tend to have a slightly younger patient population than the average cardiologist. So I would say at least half my patients are young people who probably most commonly have a strong family history of heart disease, particularly premature coronary artery disease, right? So they have a male adult relative who's had a heart attack or a stroke or something before the age of 55, or a female uh, relative who's had a, a stroke or heart attack before the age of 65. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I get a lot of people, particularly, you know, men and women, when they hit 40 or something like that, like realizing, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, my dad had a heart attack in 10 years from now. Like that's not very far away. Like what, you know, when he was my age basically. So what can I do to prevent that? So that's a huge group of patients I see. I also see a lot of people who get screened and their cholesterol is really, really high, whether it's genetic or lifestyle or a combination, blood pressure issues, um, women who've had a history of preeclampsia or gestational diabetes or gestational hypertension. Sometimes they'll find their way to me. So anyone who's really kind of been flagged as, as having risk factors for heart disease and wants to just mm-hmm. take a really proactive and aggressive approach about it. And you do a lot of telemedicine, you said, right? Like, so you're seeing people kind of all over the place. Yeah. And that's, what's super cool about telemedicine. So one, there's not a lot of preventive cardiologists. So telemedicine has definitely been, um, really fun way to be able to reach a lot more people in various parts of the, of the country. Cause so much of what I do is, you know, deep dive data analysis into like what's going on and then counseling and education, lifestyle changes, all kinds of stuff. 
Okay, so now that we kind of understand heart disease a little bit better, we understand that as women, we might not get treated the same way, we might not get screened the same way. So knowing that, let's talk about kind of the main things that you counsel people on. So what's the biggest thing that you, I I do have a random question. Okay, what's the youngest person you've ever seen have a heart attack? And then I'll get back to my other question. That's a good question. Um, I I definitely have some pretty vivid memories of a couple individuals in their young 30s having heart attacks. Yeah, yeah. And more often than not, I think most of them that I can recall um, was either cocaine-related or were were tobacco users, smoked. But I also recall a couple very young people with just a really strong family history. And um, it's just being, yeah, very, very devastating. But I mean, little known fact, almost half of all heart attacks, I just have to throw this out there, happens in people younger than the age of 65. So this isn't just like our grandparents' disease. Like this is something that, yeah, we should be, be paying attention to. And most importantly, this is something that, it's not like just all of a sudden you wake up and tomorrow you have heart disease, right? And you were normal the day before. Like this is something that happens over decades and decades and decades, right? Yeah. So the more we can kind of do to get screened, know our history and make lifestyle changes, the the better, right? Okay. Sorry. That was a left turn. I just, well, I was asking you my first question. I thought of a second question. I was like, I'll never get back there. Um, so, but I was going to, I was going, my original question was what, what do you find yourself talking to people about the most in terms of lifestyle and prevention? Like what's your, what's your jam? I mean, that's a hard one. It's like picking your child, right? Like which one's your favorite? Um, I mean, we all have one though, right? But yeah, um, but that, that changes. (laughs) Like sometimes you're my favorite. And then the next day I'm like, I don't know what's going on today, but like you're, you are in second place. That's for sure. Yes. (laughs) Totally. Um, I, so I love all the lifestyle stuff. Um, probably I end up talking the most about diet and nutrition, I would say simply because it's probably the biggest lever that we can pull when it comes to cholesterol management. Um, also sometimes also blood pressure, definitely insulin resistance, prediabetes, that kind of stuff. So I would, if I had to pick one child, it would be nutrition. Okay. Nutrition. And so now I love to have dietitians on and, you know, dietitians are wonderful. And there's always this kind of not argument, but this knowledge that most physicians don't get like any nutrition training, but I'm sure, I mean, you, you've, you've done extra stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to just for my dietitians out there. I want to say, I know you did more training than that. So, but you're talking about nutrition, not necessarily like calories and, and protein intake and that kind of thing. You're talking, I'm, I'm totally assuming you're talking about ingredients and, and why, and why would you be talking about that? Like, will you tell everybody kind of what cholesterol is and why your food intake would, would affect, affect it or, you know, in a positive way or a negative way? Yeah. So first of all, backing up to doctors and nutrition, we have like no training in it. It's totally, totally atrocious. Um, actually prevention in general, right? Like if you look back at like most of our training, it is, I mean, and we know a lot of stuff, but it's all about when, you know, hits the fan, right? So like, Yeah. yeah, when you're really sick, what can we do? How can we save your life? How can we help you not die? And so 
not enough of our focus is on outpatient management, preventive care, like what should we be doing ahead of time? And, and that, and that ties into nutrition. So things are starting to change. Like there's definitely a lot of programs that have incorporated a lot more nutritional guidance, but I mean, yeah, we, the classic joke is we learn more about in medical school about like scurvy, which most of us will never see than, you know, obesity, (laughs) which is absurd. Didn't totally. Like it's, yeah. What is it? Vitamin C or something? They were like stuck out, out in the sea and they never got oranges. any fresh fruit or vegetables. So they all got yeah. scurvy. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So we still learn about that in medical school. school you can treat useful. scurvy if you need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scurvy. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, so we need our RD friends. They are like a very integral part to the preventive team. I work with lots of fabulous ones, health coaches, all that kind of stuff. Like I think for prevention, it can be a big team. So, um, Mm -hmm. so yes, I have done extra stuff and I know more about nutrition than the average doctor, but I'm, I'm definitely not, you know, balancing macros and and all that stuff. I I need RDs to help me with that stuff. So how does cholesterol play into what, what we need to be eating or not eating? Yeah. So our body levels of cholesterol, we can manipulate them. Um, so first of all, there's genetic determinants of it. So in some people, I just want to, from the outset, say that like nutrition is not this like magic cure all for everybody. There mm-hmm. are lots of, um, genetic determinants of our cholesterol. And so probably the, like the most notable example is going to be something called familial hyperlipidemia, um, which is one of the more common in, in inherited forms of a very high level of LDL cholesterol. So you'll come mm-hmm. in with LDL cholesterol is greater than 190. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are very elevated, typically very unresponsive to diet. So, and then that's like an extreme example, but for everybody else there, you know, sometimes there is varying levels of, of genetic components. So, um, so not everybody can make changes um, and see their LDL cholesterol come down, but lots of us can. And so, um, so what's cool is that many people can, um, look at sort of what they're consuming and try to reduce their, their cholesterol doing that. And the biggest things that, um, lower our LDL cholesterol in our diet is fiber, um, uh, in particular soluble fiber, um, Mm -hmm. which helps to, um, lower our, our cholesterol. And so, um, those are in lots of plants essentially. So fruits, Mm -hmm. vegetables, um, lots of different whole grains. You can get soluble fiber in oats and barley, um, most beans and and legumes and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's actually this really interesting diet that's been well studied called the portfolio diet. And it's sort of a, um, this uh, physician actually in Canada who recognized the different uh, cholesterol lowering properties of certain foods and soluble fiber is a big part of it. So within that diet, he included around 20 grams of soluble fiber a day. Um, And so that's one part of it. The other part of it is getting lots of plant proteins, particularly soy, that can help lower cholesterol, um, nuts, with particularly ones that are really high in mono and polyunsaturated fats. Those can lower help lower cholesterol. And then there's something called plant phenols and sterols. We're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but essentially mm-hmm. they're kind of the plant forms of cholesterol analogs that can sort of compete with um, cholesterol uptake. And so putting the, all those, each of those independently can lower your cholesterol by like five, 10% or so. And he actually put them all together and then studied them and compared it to like a super low dose of a, of a statin, low a statin. And, um, in the backbone of, 
a low saturated fat diet and saw close to 30% reduction in LDL cholesterol and was comparable to the statins. So that's a great um, diet that, um, and I say diet, but, you know, dietary pattern um, that anyone can kind of play around with. Diet to lose weight necessarily, just a type of eating. Yes. Food. No, no, no. Right. Like foods you can incorporate into your diet. I mean, I don't yeah. know about you, but nuts are great. I add them into my diet every day. Right. So think different yeah. ways that you can kind of, um, change things around, um, and try to incorporate them in your diet. So, so I've had a lot of success with patients, you know, trying to incorporate those components into their, into their diet and lower their LDL cholesterol. Um, and then this is all typically on the backbone of just trying to, um, monitor, uh, saturated fat intake. And so kind of, we know from metabolic board studies where we block people in and manipulate what they eat and see what happens. We know that saturated fat in most people, I know it's crazy. People volunteer this to do this thing. I'm like, what? It, it's a thing. People actually volunteer <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Bless their hearts. We give lots of information, but we know that saturated fat um, for most people potently kind of can raise LDL cholesterol. And when you swap it out for different macros, you can see it go down. And so the biggest thing you get for your buck when you take out saturated fat, um, which is you know mostly found in animal products, is actually with polyunsaturated fats and then monounsaturated fats. So getting in those heart healthy fats, um, and then lastly complex. Yep, those pufas, we love them. Um, and then yeah. lastly complex carbs. So so that's kind of like how we can start to think about. And again, that's getting to the macros, which I hate because people eat food, not macros, but um, you can use that info to then kind of be like, all right, let's think about different swaps we can make for breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, whatever it is. So plants, vegetables, fruits, plant fiber, good. Animal products, not so good. Are there different animal products that you're like, listen, if you're not going to be a vegan, are you, are you a vegan? I'm plant-based. So I, I don't call myself vegan, but plant, plant plant-based. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would say for my patients, I mostly talk about, and I have patients all on the spectrum of, you know, plant-based plant forward. No way. Am I ever going to be plant-based like everywhere in between? Um, so, so yeah. And I think from a, from a dietary standpoint, when you look at heart health in general, I think certainly, um, he, if you do keep want to have animal products in your diet, fish comes out as being pretty cardioprotective. Again, those those poofas we talked about. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And then the fermented dairy also um, looks is fairly neutral, if not beneficial in some studies. So fermented, things like, like yogurt, like what exactly? Yeah, yep, exactly. Oh, yogurt. Cottage cheese is cottage yeah. cheese. <laughs> cheeses, cottage cheeses. Yeah. So cheese, and in fact, some cheese. of our some of the, our dietary trials, and we haven't talked about blood pressure yet. But like the DASH diet, which is a really very robust um, way to lower blood pressure using diet, um, that includes low-fat dairy products. So, so that's um, so some of my patients choose to to keep those things in. And again, it's just it's a personalized approach, yeah. right? It's all about where are you at right now? Where do you want to go? What are your goals? What are your values? What is your family eating? Like, there's so much that goes into yeah. what we're eating, other than just our health, right? But if you're like, here's my top, here's my top five worst. Like if you just had to make a list and you just said, these are the worst things you can eat, what would they be? Yeah. Ooh, good one. So I, I actually posted something on the phone, social media and the carnivores came 
after me. Right. Um, I'm sure they did. They, Get over it. Sorry. Did. Yeah. They, they were like freaking out. Um, so, so I would say processed red meat has to be sort of the, one of the top of the list, both from a carcinogenic potential. Like a McDonald's burger. Well, like I mean, I'm just a, saying like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> if I'm emotionally stressed, like if it's a high level stress level, it's as if my vehicle cannot help itself. It's going to go to McDonald's. I'm going to get a kid's meal with a cheeseburger in it. That's just a fact. I'm sorry. I don't want to so, be this way. I just am. Right. No, you know what though? But, and I think that's important to acknowledge too, because we all have our things. Right. And so when we're talking about sort of, and that's why I like the term dietary patterns, right? We're talking about what we eat the majority of the time. We're not talking about, it's not that that one hamburger is not going to be what gives you heart disease, right? It's the kind of the overall dietary pattern that you consume. But in general processed meat, so processed red, processed meat, we're talking about like hot dogs, Bacon was the example I gave people yeah. love their bacon, apparently. Um, so yeah, no hot dogs, bacon, deli meats actually fall into this category. Any Anything yeah. that's been preserved or had chemical processed. additives to it, it's processed. And there's something about it. Is that because of the it. nitrates? Like what, what is the deal? We, yeah. So it seems like it's probably a couple components, but yeah, definitely probably the, potentially the nitrates, which um, unfortunately in the setting of protein or amino acids, um, as in meat, when you cook those at high heat, they tend to convert to something called nitrosamine, which is pretty inflammatory and carcinogenic. So that's kind of mm-hmm. where a lot of that Carcinogenic means from. causing cancer, guys. That's right. what that means. You yeah, said sorry. That. You got to know, carcinogenic means that the McDonald's is not only giving me a heart attack, it's causing my cancer, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm aware. I'm sorry. Okay. So processed meat, deli meat, all of that red meat. What else? Would, so right. So it, when you look at a lot of these different kind of swap studies, so they'll look at different different food products we eat and we swap one for the other. Mm-hmm. Definitely, consistently, the process red meat, the processed meats come out on, on top. So again, not saying you can never ever have these things, but they really ideally should not be a large part of our diet that we're consuming yeah. daily. Um, red meat's another another one that's not so close behind it typically, um, and so again, mostly because it tends to be pretty high in saturated fat. Um, and so again, I explore ways with my patients where we can, you know, swap it in for, for something else every now and then. And, and a lot of my patients come back to me, they're like, wow, that was kind of fun. Like meatless Monday's fun. And I find getting, um, having my, my patients have a lot of them have teenage uh, kids and they love getting involved with this too, because I feel like, um, you know, definitely eating plants for, the, the environment is, is really big with that generation too. So it actually, I've had a lot of patients come back to me and be like, wait, this is my kids are now spearheading the meatless Mondays or whatever. So, I mean, it can be as something as simple as lentils and like a bolognese or, you know, do a big grain bowl with tons of of veggies and stuff like that. So there's different ways we, we don't always have to have red meat or subbing it out for a different meat, you know? So, um, and then definitely other processed foods. So, um, any processed and packaged foods for the most part, um, they're, they're also, uh, closely 
uh, associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, um, just, you know, typically very high in sugar or sodium and not a lot of fiber and other things. Now, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. I think that like the processed food classification is tough because I don't know about you, but like, I'm not making my own bread and stuff. So I think we're all for the most part, no. <laughs> you don't yeah. have time for that. Yeah. So no. we're all going to have no. some I mean, it's crazy, right? Like we have busy lives, like our kids are, you know, whatever. Kids, it's, I was going to say like kids snacks. I'm sorry. Like hard. I, it's hard to, I'm like, well, then you get in the plastic bags and all the things. I'm like, I, sometimes I just need to be like, go get a snack out of the snack drawer. And I mean, I try to make better choices for the snack drawer, you know, but aren't you like a peanut butter cracker? Like that's okay. It's not, you know, I'm not making a cracker and I, is there a difference between the already made one and the, me just putting peanut butter on a cracker? Maybe. I don't know. But sometimes it just, you need your kids to just go get a snack. Totally. I find the kids stuff one of the hardest areas, especially because they, when they're hungry, they are hungry. Right. And yes. I don't have always have time to go, you know, chop, chop an avocado for them and love, right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, right. so as much as possible, exactly. Like strategizing as much as you can. Um, I try to have a lot of pre-cut fruits and veggies when possible. Um, they, they love their dairy. So they still, they still have, you know, yogurts and cheeses and things like that. Um, but you know, I, I think with the processed food, a lot of it comes down to as much as we can trying to make the better choices we can. Right. And so ones that tend to be lower in sodium, low in sugar, higher, some of them have like lots of seeds in them and nuts and can be really high in um, in fiber. So those can be a better choices as well. Y'all, let me tell you about my absolute favorite home store of all time, Celadon. So they have everything from dinnerware to pillows, furniture, they even have jewelry. And yes, it's located in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, but their website has everything you could possibly need and they ship anywhere. So Celadon has like a laid back but curated vibe and no joke, almost every piece of furniture in our home has come from Celadon. So if you're in Charleston, definitely stop by or visit them online at celadonathome.com. And because they are awesome, they gave me a 20% discount code. So check them out and use code DABBLECO20 for 20% off. That's celadonathome.com. Also, what is red meat besides like a steak? I mean, I'm like buffalo, bison, like what is red meat? (laughs) So red meat. Yeah. So, and then I think most of the time that gets, um, right. So, so definitely beef, any forms of of beef, um, most of the time pork and things like that get grouped into that as, as well. Anything that's not, even they're trying to rebrand pork is trying to rebrand as the other white meat and you're not, you're not buying it. No, you're not pork. You don't get to rebrand. So sorry. All right. Red meat processed stuff. And then uh, process meat, process things in general, anything else that you're just like, try to, but I love that you're like, you know, not saying all oh, this is evil and it's going to kill you. It's just like, we're trying, like, think about it. We need to kind of be thinking about, because there is what's, what's really interesting to me. There is this kind of shift or movement into, I'm sure you see this kind of everything has a nutritional value and everything is okay for you. And I, I don't really know what to do with that because while I totally understand what this kind of uh, other side, I don't I hate to say that, but it's trying to say is 
you know, there may be people that can't afford to eat like that, or they've got, they're talking about, you know, I've seen it in the context of children that have sensory disorders and they'll Mm -hmm. only eat, you know, these three types of food. And then if we're, you know, demonizing and moralizing food, um, you know, that's obviously can be very hurtful and emotionally charged for people. But at the end of the day, it is, it's, you know, our job as medical providers to tell people like, Hey, listen, this has been studied and it, it has been shown, even though, you know, you may need to eat these foods for whatever reason, you know, lifestyle, culture, I mean, finances, who, who knows if you have other choices, these are the, they would like, they would like you not even to say better choice, but I mean, how is it not a better choice if, if it's putting you at less risk for heart disease, things like heart disease and cancer. So I don't, I'm, I like struggle with this conversation because I absolutely see both sides of it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you bring that up because I think it's, it's been something I've been thinking a lot about because there is sort of this movement to, um, to not label any one food as good or bad. And I, and I think that right. that's, imp- right. I, I, I get that. And I, and I inherently agree with that. Um, and I actually try very hard with my children not to sort of create this paradigm in which, you know, any food is is bad, right? So I definitely mm-hmm. agree with not, um, you know, demonizing any one food. As I said, I think it's it's really about your overall dietary pattern. And so if you love that McDonald's burger, that can be a part of that dietary pattern, just hopefully not a large one. So I think it's all about sort of like prioritizing foods and what should make up ideally the bulk of our diet. And then saying, yeah. you know, if dessert's your thing or the burger's your thing or whatever it is, then that's, then that's a part of your diet. It's just a smaller part of your diet. And so I think there's room for both of these conversations to kind of find a happy medium um, right. and, and sort of get to that place where where we're saying, yes, no, we're not going to demonize anyone food. Nothing is, is purely evil, but you know, this has been studied. It shouldn't be a large part of your diet. And, and frankly, you, the other point you brought up that was really important is that, um, is that the populations that tend to suffer the most from, from this is, is those that have, that are in a lower income uh, status. And so I think that, and that, that obviously is going to require, you know, big policy shifts, um, in terms of where right. we put our, our money, um, in what, it's a what much bigger conversation, right? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, this is absolutely. what's available is this, the sad kind of truth for a lot of it. I mean, I notice it on like road trips, right. Where you're like, if I didn't pack my own lunch or whatever, and you're driving through the middle of nowhere and it's like, there is no option other than Hardee's or I'm going to starve to death or I can get lunch at the gas station, which is even more of a mystery than Hardee's. You know, I mean, it's like, and this is it for this whole town. Like there, and I remember one time my cousin came from San Francisco to visit us and was staying in my grandmother's tiny, tiny little town. And he was at the grocery store and tiny town in Alabama compared to like him growing, you know, he's living in San Francisco and he's like, I don't, what, I don't know what to buy at this grocery store. Like I'm literally, he's like, I'm literally confused walking around. Like I'm looking for, I don't know, low fat yogurt or something. He's like, I don't think they have it here. And this is like the, the grocery store. Like this is the only one. And it, it was so true. Like, I mean, the town's like, I don't know, 15, 20,000 people. And like, that's it. I mean, that's, that's their grocery store. It was Piggly Wiggly. And I, they probably didn't have low fat yogurt, which is, I'm making that up, but it is such a bigger conversation about what's available and what we prioritize as a country. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there are ways that, you know, certain foods that like that are health promoting, Mm -hmm. like say beans, those are some of the cheapest things you can buy on the planet, but then it takes time to make them. Right. And so, and that, and that is for most people, the, the, the limiting factor. Right. And so, um, so certainly definitely, you know, food deserts very much exist in this country and, and there's, there's a lot that needs to be be done from like a, a higher policy perspective for sure. So, okay. Shifting away from nutrition for a second, do you talk about, um, exercise? I'm assuming some with your patients in terms of lifestyle, if you're big thing is nutrition. What's your second biggest thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just quickly before we leave the nutrition thing, cause I think this is an important point, even though we talked a lot about, you know, what are the, what are the top foods that I would recommend not be a big part of your diet? I think I, I just want to take a moment to sort of reframe that a little bit. And also yeah. because so much of what I talk about with my patients is what are we adding in? And so I think that's the other way that you can kind of okay. get these two conversations to sort of merge and not be, not be so at odds with each other is that oftentimes we can sort of improve the healthfulness of one's diet by sort of being like, okay, what are we going to, what are we going to put in your diet? And then just by virtue of of that restricting. Exactly. And so then that way it's coming from a place of not, not so much restriction, but of like adding health, health promoting foods to your diet. So anyway, I just wanted to quickly touch on that. Um, but so exercise, yes, we need it. It's not something that nearly enough of us do. Um, and is, is definitely the other huge, huge, huge pillar in terms of cardiovascular risk reduction. So I think exercise is in a really interesting place. Um, so, so clearly aerobic exercise is the big, is the big thing to make sure we're getting from a heart health Mm -hmm. perspective. So the guidelines recommend, um, getting at least 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week. Moderate intensity is like an active yoga class, a fast walk, you know, something like that. Mm. So for those of us that are doing like running, jogging, spinning, things like that, it's actually 75 minutes to 150 minutes is the recommended amount. You can continue to see benefit if you go past that. um, But at some point it starts to plateau. And then there is a suggestion that in like the super elite athletes, maybe we start to see increased risk of cardiovascular disease, but no question that aerobic exercise is like very robustly linked with improved cardiovascular outcome, all, all kinds of great things. Um, so I make sure my patients are, are getting that in. Um, and again, you can break it up however you want. I think that's another really mm-hmm. important point that gets mm-hmm. dismissed. And I fall into this trap too. Like, oh, I can't get my like 30 to 45 minutes in. Oh, never mind. Right. But research has actually shown that I think the lowest that they looked at is 10 minutes, but even 10 minutes, as long as it's, you know, you could break it up however you want. If all you can fit in today is 10, do the 10 and then tomorrow do the 40 or whatever it is. You can totally break it up how you want and still get cardiovascular benefit. Oh, okay. That, I feel like that, which should be like very hopeful for people because it can be overwhelming to feel like, well, and for me personally, I feel like I'm either in my routine or I'm not like, I'm either, I either have time and I'm, I'm fitting it all in, or I'm just like, F it. Like I don't have time this week. And that's just, just like out the window, but that's encouraging even for me to hear, mm-hmm. okay, 10 minutes. I, Cause I was thinking about the other day, I was kind of trapped at home with my kids and, um, I can't run. Like, I just can't do it anymore. My hip it's, I'm, I'm 38. My God. And I'm like my hip. So I can't imagine <laughs> if you're like, what's happening if I'm like 48, 58, but 
I was like, all right, well, we do have stairs in our house. So I was, I was, I didn't do it, but I was going to just walk up and down the stairs. Like it's a stairmaster or the step climber or whatever at the gym. Um, but I probably, I would have done it for 10 minutes. I probably would have been so bored. I don't know if I could done it, could have done it for much longer, but like I could probably do 10 minutes and then that, totally. that would be helpful. Okay. All yeah. right. That's yeah. I'll do that. Absolutely. And even if you're not hitting those like recommended targets that I mentioned, even if it's less than that research has also shown that something is better than nothing. So than even nothing. if you're not hitting your targets, it's better than being sedentary. So, um, so definitely trying to troubleshoot how to fit it all in, how to get creative. Some people do much better with like a very consistent schedule. Other people like me, day is like very different every day. I have to just try to fit it in when I can. So, you know, I think trying to, to kind of strategize how that's going to look. Um, but then increasingly what I've also been talking with my patients a lot about is the benefits of some sort of strength training or resistance training type of exercise. So whether it's weightlifting, yeah or body exercises or things like that. And in particular for, and so we know that this is important, particularly as we age, right? So one of the biggest things we want to do is prevent muscle loss or sarcopenia. That's like one of the biggest um, risk factors for premature um, death. So muscle is good, in particular for women, bone health is good and, and doing resistance training, which is really good for our bones. But from a cardiovascular perspective, we actually have seen some interesting research um, looking at body composition, blood pressure, and glucose control, insulin resistance, and showing that resistance training um, is has different effects than aerobic training and complementary. So kind of getting that in um will also so take diabetes for instance or people with insulin resistance pre-diabetes diabetes they get better hemoglobin a1c lowering so better glucose control when they do strength training than aerobic and then if you put that together you get even better glucose lowering so there's definitely certain scenarios in which um, a combination sort of approach to exercise is even better than just aerobic exercise and then but kind of back to aerobic so I would love to understand more because because I'm sure it's not just for burning cal the sake of burning calories, but is it because you're literally exercising like that? Your heart is a muscle, and you're you're actually giving it a workout. I mean, I know that sounds kind of like when I'm saying it out loud, I'm like a little duh, but I think it's important for people to know, especially. I mean, to be honest, thin, thin people, and this is a like horrible term, and I will, so I'd love to know what you hear about, but like I hear and maybe this is a Southern thing, but people called like skinny fat where it's like the person is not overweight, but their inside is like, so like their heart is so sick and they never exercise. And it's like, I envision like a smoker, like a very thin smoker. Um, but it's not just about reducing like like calories or that adipose tissue. It's literally about exercising your heart. Yeah. So, and I think that let's talk about that phenotype for sure, because that's a really good and important point. And this is where things like BMI tend to fall down. And, you know, cardiovascular Mm -hmm. health is not just about what you look like on the outside. And so, you know, looking at someone's, I have definitely had individuals who've come to see me who um, are, are, you know, their BMI is very low and they have, you know, their cholesterol is out of control or their inflammation is crazy or, you know, whatever it, whatever it is. And so I think definitely, you know, and that, and that gets back to sort of some of the eating stuff we were talking about too, right? You can eat in a way such that your BMI stays low and your quote unquote 
skinny, but if it's not not health promoting foods, then you can still have cholesterol that's that's out of whack. And that's like take for instance kind of the carnivore diet right now, right? So yes. you're restricting Ugh. to just meat, and that can help people lose weight, like. Hundred percent, it definitely can, and it yeah, probably so it can, also helps like keto, <laughs> right? Exactly. right? So can cocaine, so can smoking Which, cigarettes. So there's lots of ways we can lose point. weight, right? Point. Um, so there's a lot of ways we can lose weight, um, and it's not necessarily great for our bodies. And so, so diet or exercise um, and nutrition and all these things, it's not necessarily about achieving a specific BMI, although maybe that's a goal for, for some people. But, um, but when I'm talking to my patients, yes, a lot of this is like, what are the like discrete cardiovascular benefits that we can get from this, whether Mm -hmm. it's, it's actual, you know, vascular changes or whether it's, you know, because these help lower your blood pressure, your cholesterol or whatever else. Amazing. So how do people find you and become your patient? Yeah. So I am probably the best place to find me is my website, which is wholeheartcardiology.com. And I am licensed in New York, California, and Florida, but I'm Mm -hmm. here in the Bay area, um, physically seeing patients. And then I can do telemedicine in all of those States. And then also from a social media perspective, I'm probably most active on Instagram. It's Nicole Harkin MD. And I just tend to post all kinds of heart health stuff. So if you're interested in learning more, that's a good place to go to. Um, that is awesome. Yeah. I, I've loved following you and seeing everything you post. I think it's really helpful, but, um, gosh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Harkin. I feel like I'm going to get questions after this and we might have to do a, a episode two and do a little follow-up and talk about some things we didn't talk about today. Cause there's just, honestly, there's so much, like, I don't, I mean, I don't even know where you would end because it's, every facet of our lives, I feel like is stuff we need to, like, we didn't talk about sleep. We didn't talk about stress. I mean, we really didn't talk about half of it. So we'll have to do episode number two. Um, but gosh, well, thank you so much for coming. And guys, as always, if you liked this episode, please share it with your friends, rate it, subscribe, and I'll see you next week.